Stay inspired on the go with Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast from internationally acclaimed executive coaches, authors and ministers, Albert and Comfort Okran. You will be inspired and challenged with strategies to consistently reach for new heights. Today, I bring you an inspiring interaction with Dr. Patrick Iwa, founder and president of Ashesi University. Recorded on Springboard of Virtual University in 2019, November, Patrick talks about leadership, education, values, and the quest for the good society. Enjoy the discourse. Patrick Ewa Jr. is a Ghanaian engineer, educator, and entrepreneur. 17 years ago, he established Ashesi University, which has become a trailblazer in tertiary education. Patrick's work has won several awards, including the Order of the Volta in 2007, the John P. McNulty Prize in 2009, Ghana's eighth most respected CEO in 2010, 50 greatest leaders in 2015 from Fortune magazine, and then MacArthur Fellowship in 2015 and the Wise Prize for Education in 2017. In 2019, he's been appointed to the UNESCO Commission focusing on the future of global education. Patrick, welcome to Springboard. This is your home. Thank you. It's uh, always good to be back. Yes, you are an adjunct lecturer <laughs> in the virtual university. Our, our, our university has a, a limitless number of... You, you, you get to pay them, so you choose carefully. But we, we just look for the people who have the values we aspire to and then put them on our virtual academic board so it extends right. liberally. But good to see you. It's good to see you. Let's start from the UNESCO assignment and congratulate you on being in a position where you can speak to the future of global education. Tell us what it's about. Well, what it is, it's a commission that's been put together with uh, individuals from all over the world to deliberate on a quarterly basis on what the what the future of education is. So we're going to be thinking about where the world is going right. and what we need to do in education to prepare uh, future citizens and leaders of the world. Uh, the, the moment I heard about that point, my first thoughts went to be went to the prediction. What is your personal prediction about the future of global education? <laughs> well, I think that ed- education is um, one of the most powerful mechanisms that humanity has found to aid its progress. Um, while maintaining memory. So if you think about, um, you know, the history of humanity, civilizations have come and gone. You see, you see histories littered with, you know, relics from great nations that are no longer here. But you can also see that all of those nations left something to human knowledge. So the mathematics that was invented, um, you know, long ago in in India and the Middle East and others is, is with us. Uh, the literature that's developed elsewhere um, is still with us, um, and that's all been sort of passed through through the educational system um, of humanity. And so, we're going to continue to play that role. That education is going to be a way to pass forward existing knowledge, ex- existing culture, ex- existing a- aesthetic, and past culture and aesthetic to future generations. But education is also going to be um, is going to be the place where we see new inventions, right? So new ideas will be formed out of, out of education. And that will remain the central, uh, how shall I say, the central output of education. Um, education, like any other 
industry or enterprise also benefits from the use of technology. And so what confronts us now is that technology is changing very rapidly, right? So we're sort of at the cusp of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, we're going to move to an age of intelligent machines. Uh, humans are going to be able to do things with biology that we couldn't do before. Um, and all of this is going to have profound implications for how human societies uh, sort of are, condu are conducted. Right. And education will leverage that technology. So we will see uh, compute vast computer networks and artificial intelligences that are participating in, in, the, in the task of educating humans. Um, and we're also going to have to educate people to leverage that technology in a positive way. When you describe the future, mm -hmm. I pause to ask myself, where do we find ourselves in all this maze as Africans? So for somebody running an educational institution in Africa, the question that comes to my mind, how do we come to the table in the kind of future that you are describing, driven by technology with all that, the intelligence, artificial intelligence, and everything that, that, that is happening or that's going to happen going forward? How do we come to the table big time as Africans? Well, we have to push ourselves to come to the edge um, of technology, um, and we have to push ourselves to achieve a certain level of excellence. We have to come up with a vision of what we want Africa to be, who we want to be, and then work towards that. So I'll give you an example. If you were to go to China or Singapore or South Korea 50 years ago, and say to them that they should invest in um, educating top engineers and scientists in the world um, who would be producing most of the computing equipment of the world, people would have said that is not their competitive advantage. Right. That is something that the West does better than Asia. But they did the hard work of preparing people to do that, right? And today, you know, most of these mobile devices that we use are manufactured in Asia. Uh, the network switches and equipment that we use are manufactured there. The servers, microprocessors, there's a lot of manufacturing there that's happening that you, we could not have envisioned 50 years ago. You keep saying we. Who's we? We, humanity, the world. You so Africa. And you're painting the future of the kind of Africa that we need. And you say we should. Who's we? We are the world, right? So an African needs to think like that. We need to think we are part of the world. And we're going to be at, a, at the same level as everyone else in the world. And we have to get away from trying to take shortcuts, right? So I'll give you, I'll go back to this mobile example that I gave. You know, we like to brag now uh, in, on the African continent that we leapfrogged telecommunications to mobile telephony and in a way that's true but we leap, we leapfrogged in the use of it not in the creation of it right so the masts the switching equipment the computer systems the mobile devices we designed and built none of it what we what we've done is we've deployed it and we're adding value-added services on top of it so we're playing in the value-added area but we should have been positioned to be able to be able to create 
some of these networks ourselves, right? And in the same way, as we're looking forward and we think about artificial intelligence or we think about all the really incredible advances going on in the world, we should be encouraging the young people of this country and of this continent to be aspiring to be at the forefront of that of that revolution. Right. Um, and so it means that, for example, we should build engineering programs that are very well equipped and where students are building things, they're designing and building things, and not sort of lull ourselves into this sense that, oh, maybe we can do some online course and they'll learn something, but not at the same cutting edge as, say, at MIT or Harvard, right? So um, we have to have that kind of ambition for, for the continent. And then we have to start to take the small incremental steps to get there. Let's drill down to your perspective about leadership. And by extension, what kind of leadership Africa needs? What is your concept of leadership, and what kind of leadership do you think Africa as a, con a continent needs? So let me first say that leadership is really hard. <laughs> mm. Okay, um, and I and I say leadership uh, as defined by people who are in a position to move, empower, inspire, and enable. You know, others around them to move in a particular direction, right. right? To achieve a particular vision. And the thing that makes leadership hard is that, you know, sometimes you have leaders who sort of lose sight of the of the vision, and they sort of just think about the acquisition and maintenance of power, right? right? Which is a very limiting because it's a very limiting view. It doesn't have to do with advancing others. Uh, but that really is the definition of leaders. Uh, do, leaders are people who help others to be more successful, who empower other people, who look out for the common good. And we need those kinds of leaders. We need leaders who are principally committed to the common good. We need leaders of high integrity. We need leaders who have a determination to achieve an end and to achieve it the right way. Um, and, you know, all societies, all societies need leaders like this, and Africa certainly does as well. Equipping others high integrity, focused on achieving the common good and doing things the right way. Do we have it? We have it in pockets. Um, we, uh, I, I think we need a lot more of it on the continent. This whole discussion is about replicating pockets of excellence. And the reason we invited you is because this, we put out a poll that says, tell us which success story that you are looking at as an individual Ghanaian that you can see. This is an example of something that is being done in Ghana that is world class. And quite a number of people pointed to Ashesi as an example that they think some of what you are doing there is what they expect to see us doing on a bigger scale. There's quite a number of others that uh, people have mentioned, and I'll list some of them as we go along the line. But mm -hmm. the big question we are asking, what are you doing at Ashesi that is catching the attention of people? And even more importantly, can we, can we take that and strive to have it as a critical mass 
widespread across the country. So for the benefit of our listeners, just give us a sense of the Ashesi model. What are you trying to achieve on the hill at Brikusu? So what we're trying to do um, at Ashesi is we want to empower the human capital of this country and other African countries. So it is all about refining and empowering human capability, right? And that sort of, and when I say human capability, I'm talking about uh, not just intelligence um, or sort of intellectual uh, capability, but also emotional capability and, and integrity. And these things are very connected. So, and we've been so focused on that. We don't waver from that. Um, we don't, you know, wake up in the morning and think we're going to build uh, a great engineering program or a great business program. We think we're going to build great people. And that has been very central to us. And um, I, I think when you, when you have that belief that the people around you are very capable and you focus your attention on helping them to reach their full potential, then you achieve excellence in whatever organization or community that you're operating in. What is excellence in your opinion? <laughs> <laughs> when I was in school, excellence was 100% or 95 What, what right. really is excellence? Right. So, so, so excellence is um, really doing your best work. Um, as much as possible all the time, right? So, um, let, let me see if I can I can explain that a little bit more. So, you talked about you know excellence was getting a hundred percent. I don't think getting hundred percent on an exam is is necessarily the definition of excellence. Totally. In fact, it's excellent in one dimension but not in others. So, if you think about excellence for entrepreneurial thinking or entrepreneurial drive or scientific inquiry, that the people who innovate are people who take risks and people who are, who, who are okay with failing sometimes, right, and getting up and continuing. And in a way, the people who get A's all the time, they're right at least 80% of the time, right? So they've not really built the capability of failing. Right, but the person who sometimes gets forty percent, that person has experienced failure, and and if they can get up and keep going and have grit, that is excellent in its own way, right? So that's why I say it's both. So it's both the intellectual and the emotional excellence that we have to look at. It, look at. We also look at. We should also look at moral excellence, right? So you think about what makes humans different from other animals and we are animals we're just the, we're just the smartest ones around but we're also the most moral ones around we we have a conscience we sort of think about what is good and right we sort of in a conscious way think about others and think about how our actions affect others and so if we want to be excellent human beings, we have to be excellent in, in our morality and our, um, as well as in our intellectual capabilities. 
And excellent doesn't mean perfection. Right. Right? People will make mistakes, but they need to sort of get up from those mistakes and keep going. Two questions come to my mind from your description. The first one is, does this school of thought that says it is no one that those who get 100% rarely go into entrepreneurship? <laughs> so now with your explanation, I'm beginning to put two, two together and say, okay, so it explains probably why the A-class students statistically don't often go into business and entrepreneurship. And what you're seeing gives me an idea that probably uh, there's a link between that one. But even more importantly, you mentioned exams and 100% not being the sole determinant of excellence. Um, I, I'm thinking about the Anna Code, something that um, the first thing that went around about it, just is that school that you do exams without an invigilator. Right. I was speaking to somebody who came to your school just, uh, when was the last intake? A couple of months ago? Right, that's oh, right, so, in September. I said, yeah. yes, tell me. Tell me about the Anacode. He said, yeah, we signed up to it before we even came. And then he's, tra he's trying to explain it to me. I know about it, but right. this is the first student trying to explain to me why he doesn't need an invigilator to write an exam. Tell me, what do you tell them when they arrive? <laughs> but you see, I think that that is excellence, right? So when somebody says, look, I can be in an exam room and I find it really difficult and I can see I'm not going to get 100%. I'm gonna, my grade is going to be lower but I'm not going to try to cheat right. to get that 100%. Because 100% is not the goal. The goal is for me to learn. Right. And they can make that decision that I'm going to act with integrity, regardless of what my grade is going to turn out. Um, that is excellence, right? So those are the people that you can trust to run important organizations. Because they're the ones who will be able to admit when they've made a mistake and take corrective action. They're the ones who are not going to be cutting corners. They're the ones that are not going to be stealing from the organization mm -hmm. and so on. It seems to be something that has become entrenched in our lives. In fact, we had a springboard event and Dr. Tobel had a shock of his life because right with all the cameras on them, with all their, their lecturers present, Students were asked how many of you, if you got the chance to see exam papers a day before the exam, would cheat. And openly, probably eight out of ten lifted up their hands. Right. Are you surprised? Well, I'm disappointed, but I'm not su surprised um, because I've heard it. I've heard it before as well from you know my students who've come from you know you know secondary schools and junior high schools where cheating was rampant organized supported facilitated sometimes by teachers yes. right so it's and parents and parents right. and and invigilators sometimes right so this this is i think we should all be alarmed by it right because what it does is it completely corrodes the integrity of society when everybody thinks that it's okay to cheat to get yeah. by right and the, the way to think about it is to really look at the boundary, boundary conditions, right? Extreme boundaries. So let's say you have a society where everybody cheats, lies, steals all the time. Everybody. That's a dystopia, right? And a boundary where nobody ever does the wrong thing. That's a utopia. Now, Let's look at the scenario where everyone cheats and steals and lies all the time. What can happen in that society? 
can people get together to do a business? Can parents trust their children? Can children trust their parents? In a society like that, you cannot have a modern functioning state. You cannot have anything that requires collective action, right? Because you can't trust anybody. Wow. And and so and so and the the opposite in, in a society where you can trust everybody, you can have a very high velocity society. They can get together and do things quickly, and move very fast, very and go very far, very quickly. So we need to understand that if we build up a generation that sees absolutely nothing wrong with with cheating. They'll also see nothing wrong with stealing and other things, and they will not be able to run a modern functioning state that is competitive in the world. So you, you see a, a correlation between cheating and exams and corruption on a mass scale? Yes, absolutely. Today on our Data is King segment, I'm telling you that we posted the the, the highlights of this or the, the reports, just the part that says 18% of managers... It's only 18% of managers who understand how to manage people. And the people are really angry, <laughs> angry on Facebook, especially the part that says that that means that 82% are collecting their money and not doing their job. It's, it's not still what we put at all. So it was, let's go to the report itself and find out what, what exactly is the source of this, this statistic. Okay. So this evening, our data is seen segment is titled The Leadership Crisis. Right. And we are combining two reports, the World Economic Forum report on the future of work and then a report produced by Potential Project, which is a leading um, firm, leadership training firm. Right. So the World Economic Forum report on the future of work identified people management and coordinating with others as two of the most critical skills for career relevance in 2020 and beyond. However, according to a Gallup poll in 2016, it says that only 18% of managers demonstrate high-level talent for managing people. And this is where that shocking thing comes. When you turn it around, then it means 82% of managers really don't have the skills to lead people. Right. Um, and it ties in also with a statistic represented on the 15th of September, which says that 71% of companies do not think that their current leaders are capable of driving them into the future. Right. Um, so an article by Potential Project titled The Real Leadership Crisis, which draws on a two-year study of 35,000 leaders says that people on the leadership fast track often get promoted based on pushing those they manage and also defeating the internal organizational competition. As a result, these managers turn out to be bosses who either do not listen at worst or abusive at worst. And according to that same report, 50% of all people who quit their job 
do so in order to run now away from their managers who are ruining their lives. That's the part that caught my attention. <laughs> Say that part again. I beg you. Fifty percent of people who resign. People who resign. Resign because of the person managing them. Yes. Shocking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tonight we have a question for our listeners, and we are saying: Is the tough, aggressive, and uncompromising approach a necessary evil in managing people in our part of the world, or is there a better way? Charlie, you do. Hey, that is it. That is it. Some people say that our people they are stubborn, so you need a, a tough, uncompromising aggressive approach to get them to do the basic minimum. But, Patrick, is there a better way? You are the guru. Tell us, Charlie. You have to help us solve this one. First well, of all, are you, are you surprised at these statistics? Well, not completely. I, I think that when, you know, 18% have high-level capability is really talking about 18% that are at the top. All right, but so it's, the high possible, level is the, the it's possible that there are people sort of in the middle that are sort of okay around, you know, you have a normal distribution, right? There's going to be right. people who are really good. There's going to be a few of them, and then there's a lot clustered around the median, and then a lot, and then a few that are terrible, right? So, I'm not completely surprised. But, you know, I, look, I wouldn't call myself a, a guru, um, though I would say that my management style is not to micromanage people, um, to, um, it gives people room to to work, um, and the only requirement for me is that. So actually, let me let me say, if people are making mistakes all the time, they're clearly not trying hard enough, and and they're going to hear from me that hey, look, this error is recurring and it's a problem. But it is also the case that people who never make I'm, I'm interested in the hearing from you. People is it, is it just hearing. <laughs> Well, yes, they hear from me. I mean, I will, I will express a displeasure about the state of affairs. And the, the, best, the best people will take that feedback and turn around and, and turn it into something really great, right? Do you fire when the need arises? Um, I have on occasion. It is the part of my job that I find most difficult. And it is something that I need to work at. Um, and actually, um, there are times when I have fired too late I, I that I, sh I should probably have done it quicker it would have been better for everybody involved um, but I'm working on it I won't say that it is also the case that people who never make mistakes are also probably not working hard enough because if you're working hard enough then you're going to be pushing the performance horizon you're going to be attempting things that you haven't done before right. And because you're attempting those things, you are going to make some mistakes. Um, and that is okay. I actually, it's not to say that I want to see all my people making mistakes, but when somebody makes a mistake, it is perfectly okay. What is not okay is that they sort of fail to acknowledge the mistake or they fail to acknowledge the mistake or... Um, they keep repeating the mistake, right. right? That is where there's a problem. So for me, as a manager, I think that if you really want to empower people, you have to give them space to get work done. You have to set very high expectations of what uh, you want them to do. 
and holds them to it. Um, you have to put the right people in the right positions. And um, you have to also make sure that you don't have people on the team that are disrupting others. Because sometimes, the and this is where I would say, you know, the times when I have waited too long to fire somebody is when that person um, is disrupting others. Right. Um, we really should not tolerate it at all. Um, and I have tolerated it um, on some occasions, much to my regret. It's a conversation we are having about leadership excellence and replicating success models. And that's the next question I'll be asking, Patrick. How do we grow more assurances, more success stories across the country and also across the continent? But driving further into these statistics that Amos shared, the one that catches my attention is the potential project real leadership crisis that says very often the people who get promoted are the ones who are pushing those they manage and also who literally outwit and defeat others. It's almost like a contest. Break somebody's neck and then move yourself forward. Right. Patrick, is, is that the best way to get things done? It's not. And people like that are very dangerous to an organization because um, if you think about think about who makes it to be CEO. The CEO has to care about everyone. The CEO has to care about employees, about customers, about shareholders, about the public, right, other stakeholders. Um, and so you want the people who rise up to the CEO level or to the C-suite to be people who can really care about others, who have empathy. And those that rise up by sort of elbowing other people out of their way don't have empathy. And when they end up in positions of power, they can cause great damage. Their mistakes will be sort of existential mistakes for the organization. Talking about empathy, it's a, it's a, it's a centerpiece of the, I almost said the doctrine, but a theory of emotional intelligence. And you seem to be describing, as in your last point, the need for emotional intelligence and leadership. How big is that issue? I think it is, it is central to everything that a leader does. If you're, if you're there to help others to be more successful, you have to have empathy. Um, if you're there to run an organization that um, delivers value to customers, you have to have empathy, deep empathy for your customers, right? And so empathy is not this soft... Some people think empathy is sympathy. They think of it as sympathy, some squish, squishy, sort of touchy-feely thing, right? It is actually very, a very important business skill. Right. Let me let me define uh, empathy as um, as captured in, in, in this quote that is right in front of me. It says, empathy is seeing with the eyes of another. Correct. Listening with the ears of another and feeling with the heart of another. Yes. And imagine imagine the leadership of, a, of an organization that can do all of that right. from the perspective of customers. Right. Or a politician that can really see and feel and hear from the perspective of their citizens or their constituents, how great that leader would be, right? So empathy is a, I would say that it is one of, if not the most important leadership capability or attribute uh, in any society or in any organization. Really, really interesting point you make, Patrick. Patrick, tell me about 
um, replicability. How do we replicate these success stories? If you talk about the few cases we are looking at. That let me, let me ask you outside of Chelsea, what has impressed you? Uh, any example, any case study, any 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 Ghanaian example that has caught your attention? You're like, oh, you're doing some great stuff. They tell me outside of Chelsea. Is there anything that has caught your attention? <laughs> let me say that because I, I, I know you, you eat, sleep, and drink at Chelsea, but let, yes. let's go outside your your home base. <laughs> so. That is a really, really good question. And I think my answer is going to surprise you. Try me. So, <laughs> you know, so early days uh, when I was running a chassis, there's an organization that sort of caught my eye that I really admired uh, the organization. I really admired the leader. It was, it's a very different style sort of the organization had a different style and vibe than what I was building at Ashesi, but nonetheless, I really respected. And that organization was UT Financial Services, and and Kofi Amwa being as a leader was uh, very impressive to me because this is somebody who had worked in the military, had switched careers, was in financial services. You know, you could see. You could see the the culture that he was building in that organization, and the dedication and the discipline. There was this discipline there um, that was very impressive. A little different style than mine because he's a military guy and I was not. Um, so, you know, of course we all know what happened with UT Bank um, recently, and I remember reading the news and just you know as a founder um myself i just felt awful for kofi Mwabing. i mean i just felt oh my god i mean he built this thing he stepped away from it and it died <laughs> and this must be a very painful experience that he's going through and i wonder what happened have you reached out to him I reached out to him uh, when the news first broke, and I, you know, I said, "Look, Kofi, I'm really sorry to hear what happened, and um, let me know if there's anything I can do to help." And um, I've also recently reached out to him to um, actually come and uh, speak with students and faculty at Ashesi to sort of share his experience. His experience, um, because there's always there's always so much you can learn from people who have. Um, who have suffered uh, a setback of, of this nature, um, but who also had very successful careers. Um, so, but, but, but the thing about, and the reason I use that example is that, you know, at the, at the end of it, the people that we must admire are the people who really do step into the arena, who really uh, put in the sweat equity and who struggle and who build something uh, in spite of all the risks. And uh, to the extent that they have setbacks or failures, we should be sort of hoping that they can acknowledge those failures, pay whatever price they need to pay, and then step back into the arena and keep going. Uh, so was that, a, was that the answer you were expecting? Absolutely brilliant answer. And I'll tell you what. Because just to just to buttress the point that you make, I I recall an experience I had sitting with Kofi Amwabing talking about Ubuntu. He was yes. fascinated by this concept of collective ownership, so um, building a work culture in which 
there is empathy, and he was very, very passionate in speaking about right. it. But one thing caught my attention in that discussion we we're having, right at the peak of the discussion, somebody knocked on the door and gave him a signal, and he said, Albert, hold it. So somebody brought him a document, and he said, give me a couple of minutes, and he signed it. And then when he said, stop, sorry for breaking into our conversation, but I have made a promise to give a loan in 48 hours. If I don't sign now, it will delay the process. <laughs> I just start laughing. That's incredible. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was just, just profound for you. But let me come back to the question again. How do we replicate these kinds of success stories across the country and the continent? I think that uh, replication is difficult because, um, you know, excellence starts with people and culture of organizations. And the forming the culture of an organization is not something that's easily replicated. Uh, however, if you if you really want to see excellence replicated across organizations, the, there's a small group of people that you must start with. The, the chief executives mm -hmm. and their senior leadership teams, right? So if you have the right leadership in place in an organization, then a lot is possible. And so if you're trying to, if you're trying to replicate excellence um, across industries, what you really need to do is you need to replicate great leadership across industries. So 2020, Patrick Ewa is going on sabbatical, signing <laughs> off from HSE, tuning off from your email. Tell, tell, tell us what will happen. Then I'll go for the details segment, the, the game changer segment. No, let me come back from the, the game changer segment, and then we'll hear about the breaking news. Sabbatical, you sign off and go away. That's right. Charlie, Juju, let's hear the game changer segment. In the game changer segment today, we are talking about trailblazers, people who do unusual things to transform society. Did you take it away? So over 700 years, the University of Cambridge has been a bastion of higher education. However, the venerated institution has a bit of a privileged problem. Cambridge has traditionally recruited students from society's elite. A recent study actually showed that eight of, just eight of England's top schools had as many students admitted to Cambridge and Oxford as three quarters of all schools combined. Now, due to this exclusionist recruitment system, black students have been chron chronically underrepresented at Cambridge. In fact, one Cambridge college did not admit a single black student between 2012 and 2016. <laughs> right? So, spurred by his own experience of being kicked out of high school and denied the opportunity to access further education, UK rapper Stormzy decided to set up a scholarship to support black students at Cambridge and increase minority access at the institution. Today, our game changer is blazing a trail. In the year since the scholarship was instituted, Cambridge admitted almost 50% more black undergraduates than the previous year. And this actually led to the number of black undergrads at Cambridge exceeding 200 for the first time in 700 years. As I was actually researching the scholarship, wow. crazy, right? One thing stood out to me. In so many of the articles, black students simply did not see themselves at Cambridge. So the president of Cambridge's Afro-Caribbean Society highlighted this when he said, I hope the scholarship will be encouraging to any black students who may have been told that Cambridge isn't the place for them. Black students actually sent in few applications, not because they were less talented or less capable, but simply because they did not see themselves represented at Cambridge. 
Indeed, when public school students even attained the same grades as their private school counterparts, they were still less likely to apply to the top schools. Now, while Stormzy may have only directly sponsored four students, he enabled thousands of young black children to dream and to see themselves at Cambridge. Now, consider this statistic. If a male black student has a black male teacher in elementary school, they are 40% less likely to drop out of school by the time graduation rolls around. And singer Dolly Parton put it best. If your actions create a legacy that inspires others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, then you are an excellent leader. This week, let us take a moment to recognize the impact that our work and our lives have on the people that look up to us. This has been The Game Changer with Joe Jorokin. Have a phenomenal week. Absolutely brilliant. That's great. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yes. You are an educationist. Tell me your thoughts on that. I think it's fantastic. I mean, you know, that's one of the things that we care a lot about at Ashesi is diversity. And right. we, we raise scholarship monies to make sure that everyone is represented, that we have 50% women, 50% men, that we have students from all over the country, from all over the continent. I, I, I think I, it's really I've, important. I've benefited from that, so I can testify about that. Patrick, let's talk about sabbatical. You caught my attention big time when you mentioned sabbatical, that you could actually have the, 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 the courage to shut down and walk away for half a year. Tell me about it. Well, so, you know, I sh the university has been running for about 17 and a half years, and um, our foundation in Seattle has been running for 20 years. So I've been doing this for 20 years, and um, th this year, actually last year, uh, I started to think that perhaps I should take a sabbatical. I needed to take some time off, and, um, you know, I needed to make sure that... Um, I could walk away for a significant amount of time and know that the institution will function well. But, but, but many CEOs I know can't be away from their job for a month. I mean, sign the checks. We do this. We do that. There's so much people care about or worry about. How right. can you do that for six months? Shut down. You say you shut down your email. I'm going to delete my email app from my phone, um, and so I will not be on email. Wow. Uh, my. Uh, my assistant and my family will be able to reach me in an emergency, uh, but otherwise, I am disconnected. Breaking <laughs> news. Um, I will. I will come for graduation day um, next year, uh, but other than that, I will not be connected at all to the university. It's a lot of boldness, doesn't it? Yeah, but it you know, and it's a milestone, right? I think it's I have a senior management team that is really excellent, that is very capable, and that's really running the ship right now. And um, we are just about to launch into planning for our next major strategic plan. And I think this is a good time for me to take some time off and clear my head and come back recharged and ready to go for the next for the next major step that a chassis is going to take. Right. Um, let me go to Comfort to ask you the one thing that has caught your attention today. It's been a very insightful discussion for me, and when it happens that way, one hour goes very, very fast. But for me, um, two things that you see have, have caught my attention. You try to paint a picture of dystopia and utopia, and you, you, you linked 
um, cheating in exams with corruption and with society in which everybody wants to get things done their way and the shortcuts. And you challenged us to build an Africa where we look at 50 years from now what we will need and, and stop this talk about it not being our competitive advantage and start now to do something that may benefit us not in the next electoral cycle but in 50 years. And when I asked you who is we, I was asking who will have the courage to say it's not even about winning the next election, but something that we will do that it is in the next 50 years that we'll actually see the full benefit. That one, it left right. me thinking, Patrick. Right. <laughs> that was, what is for you the, game, the, the, the big thoughts that you are carrying away for today? Well, I definitely disagree with the, um, Patrick, <laughs> when he's talked about the fact that uh, when you have a society where cheating is, is um, the norm, there, there's breakdown of trust. And you know business is a speed of trust. Is that, the yes, speed of public? trust, yes. Yeah. That the fact that when trust, when the high trust society, it's in, it's it reduces the cost of doing everything. Right. Whereas when the trust in the society is highly is, is very low, then it increases the cost of everything. And you, can, and you see that when uh, when nine eleven happened, and now when you're traveling, you no longer can just walk in, but you have to take time and so on and so forth. So definitely, it is true. I mean, trust is really important. Um, integrity is really important, and we really have to look at ways we can. Increase integrity in our society. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's been really enjoyable uh, to have this conversation with you. I do think that the question of integrity and trust is really important, and we have to form that through the educational system, um, through our families, and through faith based organizations. And all hands must be on deck in addressing this. And if the current state of dishonesty in our school system is anything to go by, then we have a crisis on our hand, and uh, there should be a very concerted effort to address it. Thank you for listening to Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast by Arbet and Comfort Okran. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages at Arbet and E. Okran and Comfort Okran A for free resources and information about our itinerary, conferences, and media broadcast. For speaking appointments, email albert.okran at icloud.com or SMS or WhatsApp us on plus 233-2499-900. You may also subscribe to amazon.com or your favorite online bookstore for copies of our inspirational books and audiovisual materials. Until we come your way again, always remember, you are blessed indeed.